there. Welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to writer Omar El Akkad about his unusual path from journalist to best-selling fiction writer and also how Peter Pan and also the refugee crisis served as inspiration for his latest book. Also, documentary filmmaker Penny Lane is going to stop by to discuss her new film, Listening to Kenny G, which tries to figure out how Kenny G is both the most popular instrumentalist of all time and also kind of the most unpopular, at least with some critics. Then, speaking of musical acts from Seattle, because that's where Kenny's from, uh, we're going to hear a song from The Dip featuring their horn section, The Honey Nut Horns. I mean, come on, The Honey Nut Horns? How are you not going to stick around for that? So you're sticking around? Good, because the thing gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going real well. I'm in the holiday spirit, consuming a lot of eggnog and just really really cozying up this time of year, which is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things to do. I know one of your favorite things to do is to play station location identification (laughs) examination, right? Yeah. This is where I uh, ask you about a place uh, where we're on the radio and you try to figure out the place that I'm talking about. All right. This week the city that we're talking about. It's actually the largest U.S. city, which also serves as a state capital. Okay, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. (laughs) Okay, you're close. I mean, you're in the right part of the country. You want to move more towards a state that's (laughs) abbreviation starts with A and ends with Z. Is it, uh, I don't even know what the capital of Arizona is. Is it Phoenix? It's Phoenix. Where we're on KJZZ, the follow-up hint was going to be, it is also apparently the largest U.S. city without Amtrak rail service. Oh, well, that's surprising. Who'd have thunk, right? Yeah. They may not have Amtrak, but they have Livewire on KJZZ there in Phoenix. So (laughs) hello to everyone who is uh, listening to the program. Speaking of which, should we get started? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, documentary filmmaker Penny Lane. The thing I think is interesting about music is how deeply tied to our sense of personal and social identity it is. And writer 
Omar El Akkad. Journalism doesn't do well with unanswerable questions. And I have a lot of those, so I end up going to fiction just to sort of sit with questions and let it marinate. With music from The Dip and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of LiveWire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country. We have a great show in store for you this week. Of course, we did ask the listeners a question. What's something you love that few other people seem to appreciate? This is in no way related to the fact that we're talking about Kenny G on the show this week, <laughs> Elena. <laughs> something that some people really love and other people may have less of an appreciation for. That is the music of Kenny G. Uh, but we're going to hear those responses from the listeners a little bit later on in the show. First, though, of course, we got to kick things off like we always do with the best news that we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there are some good things happening out there in the world. Helena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Okay, so when you went to high school, Luke, did you have like a pep squad? I think we called them the spirit squad, maybe. A spirit squad that like... Like the ones in my school would like on the they'd sit in the bleachers during the basketball game, and when the opposing team came in, they'd pretend to read newspapers. Like they put newspapers <laughs> up and like plaque the whole thing. You know? Did you go to a drama like a music <laughs> and arts high school? That's like a pretty high level trolling from the Spirit Squad. Well, you know, Georgia takes its sports seriously, and in my school, at least, those Spirit Squads were only relegated to sports teams. But at Mountain View High School in Orem, Utah. They have just started a spirit squad for non-sports activities. Nice. Yeah. The sports pep squad is called the Bruin Crazies. I'm assuming the mascot there at Mountain View is the Bruins. And so now they have a squad called the Bruin Classies. <laughs> they just started it this term and it already has 90 members. And they one of the things that they do is they go around school during school hours and they wear signs advertising the upcoming concerts and plays and things. And then they all show up en masse to certain performances and cheer on the high school artists. So they all advertised and came to uh, a production of Into the Woods this week. Oh, in honor of Sondheim? Well, I hope so. I hope that they're doing their high school best to pay tribute to Stephen oh, Sondheim. Oh, I'm sure they are. I know. Drama kids are probably all very good about that. But yeah, I just think that's so cool that like the school is is recognizing how important it is, not just that the students have these opportunities in the arts, but that other students support them the way that athletes are supported, because I think that's such a great thing for community. And it just made me cry like a baby because I'm just such a, I'm a former drama kid who wished I could uh -huh. have had my own spirit squad. <laughs> I was on the little TV station at my high school, you know, the like the news that would happen after second period. On the closed circuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Raider Report, we called it, at Nathan Hale. I got in a little trouble because I did an expose on some of the lunchroom situation going on, and I got one of the lunch ladies to dance on one of the tables set to the music of Ice Cube. What? That, was, that kind of brought to an end my time on the Raider Report, but it would have been nice if we had like a spirit squad there keeping us pepped up. The pep squad could have stood outside the detention room while you were sitting in there and being like, let Luke out. Let that's right. Luke I out. could have used a little support. Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> I got a great story for you as well. And it starts about 20 years ago when a woman named Gladys Hankerson of Delray Beach, Florida, 
was trying to call her sister in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And her sister's phone number, being that it was in Maryland, started with the area code 410. Okay. But she punched the numbers in wrong and accidentally dialed 401, which actually rings to Rhode Island, (laughs) where a guy named uh, Mike Moffitt picked up his phone, and all he heard was, oh, sweetheart, I've got the wrong number, sorry. That was Gladys Hankerson hanging up. And then later that day, it happened again, and then it happened again. And (gasps) then over the course of a few weeks, old Gladys Hankerson just kept (laughs) dialing the wrong area code and just having these teeny snippets of conversation with Mike. Okay. So finally, after I don't know how many of these events, this guy Mike just says, oh, before you hang up, what's your name? What's going on? And she said, oh, I'm trying to call my sister. And they like start chatting a little bit. And he asks her how she's doing. And she says, actually, I'm having a little bit of a hard time. I I recently lost a son and I'm going through a divorce. And he was a really good listener, Gladys says. So she wrote down his number on like a pad of paper (laughs) and then just sort of held on to it. And when she would be going through a hard time over the course of the last 20 years, she would call Mike up in in Rhode Island and Ah! just kind of like tell him how she was doing, and they would chat. Anyway, this year around Thanksgiving, it just so happened that Mike and his family were in Delray Beach, Florida. Oh, my God. And so they they <laughs> surprised Gladys Hankerson. He came in. This is maybe the most amazing part. I watched a TV news report on this. She didn't seem that shocked that he randomly walked into her house after 20 years. <laughs> he just knocked on her door, and he said, hey, it's Mike from Rhode Island. And she threw up her hands and said, I'm blessed. <laughs> that- was the response from Ms. Gladys Hankerson at finally being united in person with this person that she had been talking to on the phone for all these years. 20 years. 20 years of this. Oh, he must be just the world's greatest listener. And he must have really seen something or heard something in her that touched him to to keep receiving these phone calls. <laughs> it's such a, oh, it's such a beautiful and such a happy story. She said, Uh, What some might consider an inconvenience proved there are incredible people in the world who are just a wrong number away. That's what Gladys said. This really makes me want to re-examine my policy of never answering my phone. I I don't think I've answered my phone in nine years. (laughs) Well, you know me. I don't even know where my phone is. So That is true. (laughs) No Gladyses will be helped by me. (laughs) Maybe that's the best news I heard all week. Elena, is that you're not as phone obsessed as the rest of us. Anyway, something in there is the best news that we've heard all week. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. She's been making award-winning documentary films for over a decade. Uh, Her body of work includes five features, examining everything from the Satanic Temple to a Depression-era goat testicle impotence cure. Oh, my. I just found out we're allowed to say that on public radio. Uh, Her newest (laughs) film, Listening to Kenny G, explores why some people seem to really hate Kenny G's music and lots and lots of other people love it. The film premiered at the 2021 Toronto International Film Festival, and now it is streaming on HBO. Penny Lane, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me. I'm curious what your relationship uh, was with uh, the music of Kenny G before you started doing this film. Yeah, I mean, I kind of came of age as a teenager in the 90s, and I was very into, like, what we then called alternative music. Um, 
indie rock, like, you know, kind of that kind of thing. And, um, and so, yeah, so for me, like, you know, in that era, that was the height of Kenny G ubiquity, like global mm. penetration, domination, <laughs> everywhere you went. So like, you know, so it was like you heard Kenny G constantly, whether you chose to or not. And no one that I knew would have chosen to, but it was kind of just in the air you breathed. So, I mean, I didn't like it, but I didn't like hate it or think about it that much. It was just kind of part of like the sound of corporate America, Mm. You know, flash forward a bunch of years and I'm trying to think of an idea for a music documentary for HBO. And um, and I thought, well, the thing I think is interesting about music is how deeply tied to our sense of personal and mm -hmm. social identity it is like. You know, like you might love, you know, the novels of Toni Morrison, but people who love the novels of Toni Morrison don't tend to all then become friends and dress the same and like have similar personalities. Like, but if you like industrial music or like insane cloud posse, like that might actually become like a really important constitutive part of your identity. Right. You know, so like jazz heads or, you know, whatever. So anyway, so I started thinking about that and I wanted to come up with an idea that would let me like explore that. You had a, a very genius conceit for this film. I mean, it's called Listening to Kenny G. And you have all of these uh, music critics and jazz aficionados listen, actively listen <laughs> to Kenny G's music while you're interviewing them. Did you go out and specifically try to find uh, music experts who had been on the record as being not fans of Kenny G's music? Is that how those those people made their way into the film? Most of them had been on the record saying something about Kenny G, which put them in a very small, like, list. Huh. Like, music critics <laughs> and academics, like, music scholars and music critics are not, like, discussing Kenny G. So I was genuinely kind of nervous to approach these like prestigious people mm. with this idea. I was like, are they going to be insulted? Like, I don't know. So I went hunting for things. So Ben Ratliff had written a couple things about Kenny G 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then Will Lehman had not written about Kenny G, but he'd written a lot about smooth jazz as a kind of construct. And I, um, again, not a lot of jazz critics have, have paid any attention to smooth jazz. Um, and, uh, John Halley, who's this guy from Bard, he had written an article for Jacobin magazine, which is a Marxist uh -huh. magazine sure. called in defense of Kenny G <laughs> and it got Jacobin like the most hate mail they've ever gotten for like any article ever. So he, he got brought into the film. Chris Washburn had written an academic article called does Kenny G play bad music? So mm. These are really, there's almost no one else that has said anything about Kenny G with any sort of credentials. And so mainly I was casting for nuance and like a sense of humor. Yeah. Like who would hang with this idea? Let's talk a little bit about the rise of Kenny G. There's so much to be said about the kind of antipathy towards him, which almost feels like tired at a point. Like the rise of Kenny G is quite something. I mean, talk about his kind of the height of his popularity and ubiquity. I mean, the guy has some pretty impressive stats as far as his success as a musician. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things I didn't really appreciate fully going into this was like, what a unicorn he is. Like, mm -hmm. there's just no other person you could even put in a category with Kenny G. Like, the best-selling instrumentalist of all time by a factor of like 10. You know what wow. I mean? Like, there are other instrumental artists who have done well. Uh, many of them have had like one hit, you know, um, but that hits really big. But in the late 80s and, and, and through the 90s, he had just hit after hit after hit, like year after year. 
dominating the jazz charts, dominating the pop charts, dominating the R&B charts, like just winning. So I thought it was a very odd story because if you were me, you'd come to this music thinking it was like somehow cooked up in a laboratory Uh by like (laughs) corporate executives looking for like the lowest common denominator or something. (laughs) But that's not actually... What happened at all? Like Kenny G was signed to Arista by Clive Davis. Clive saw something special in him, um, but they didn't know what to do with him. They had no idea like what to do with this like skinny Jewish kid from Seattle who like played the saxophone in a very kind of ostentatious crowd-pleasing way. I believe someone in the film describes jazz as um, as, as making love. And what Kenny G does musically as, um, let's say, making love to oneself. You know what, Penny? We actually have to take a very quick break here on Livewire. Uh, We're talking to Penny Lane, the director of the new documentary out on HBO, Listening to Kenny G. Uh, This is Livewire from PRX, and we will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. 
Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're talking to Penny Lane, director of the new uh, HBO documentary, listening to Kenny G about the uh, the life and career of the the much loved and also much criticized musician uh, Kenny G. So. Before the break, we were talking about how this label has signed Kenny G. They're kind of not sure what to do with him. They have him sort of doing songs that have people singing on the songs. Sometimes he's breakdancing in the videos. It's not a good fit. (laughs) And so he actually gets booked on Carson. And they want him, the plan is for him to play the single off of the, the album, which he's not really into. He wants to play this song called Songbird that he wrote that he's really proud of. And so he pulls a pretty gutsy move, it would seem, where he he just tells his backing band, we're playing Songbird. So they basically played the wrong song or the song they weren't supposed to play on Carson. Did that really happen? Yeah, as far as I know. <laughs> um, you know, he's told that story pretty consistently from the beginning. Um, so if it didn't happen, then we're just participating in like normal rock legend stuff, right? Sure. Yeah. But yeah, so it's very... Um, surprising the story because you know again you might have this kind of image of Kenny G as being this very kind of like milk toast almost passive conveyor of mm. schmaltz or something but he he really was trying to figure out who he was as an artist and so he had at that point already had done three whole albums for Arista none of which were successful and none of which were he was happy with like mm-hmm. he was like how do i play my music that like i here in my head. And the important thing to stress is that nobody was asking for this. Like nobody, <laughs> like not even his, not even his record label was right. like, yeah, you should play the music that you really love. They were like, no, nah, let's do another R&B song and you can do a solo on it. It's kind of interesting though, um, as you lay out in this film, that the sort of early days of Kenny G, because the label wasn't quite sure what to do with him, because his style of music was associated often with black artists, black singers, the covers of his albums left his ethnicity or his race kind of vague. What what has his relationship, his music's relationship been with with black performers and black people in America? Because you could say it's sort of been complicated, right? Yeah, it is very complicated. And it's so complicated that, like, it's hard to even summarize, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a couple different ways to approach that question. On the one hand, like... His association with black artists and black audience members is that's most of his success. Um, so, you know, my my black friends who grew up at the same time as me associate that music with their home, mm-hmm. like, you know, this kind of middle class aspirational music that was like very common in like black households. So, again, it's hard to like be like a generalizer here. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But largely it is true, at least in my observation, that most of the hate that comes at Kenny is not from black people. They're like, either they like him or they're like, whatever. But uh, it's white people who are, I think they're anxious about their relationship to this, like, you know, largely black art form. And Mm. so like, we find it threatening that Kenny is so completely clueless. So there's so many different layers to this. Kenny is completely clueless, right? Like he's not tapped in to like the racial reckoning of, you know, the 21st century. So he's just like unaware. Like in the film, I ask him about basically the idea of white privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is not a concept he's ever heard of. Um, And you sort of see him react in (laughs) real time and like think about that. And I think he, he's, you see it, like his wheels are turning in his head and he's like, oh yeah, I can see how the fact that like I was white in 1986 
when pop radio was completely segregated, like again, for young people, it's hard to understand this, but MTV at that time didn't play black artists. Mm. Like in Billboard magazine, there were charts for like pop music and there were charts for black music. So, I mean, it was just a very different time and it was much more segregated and like overt ways. So yeah, so Kenny sees in his head like, oh yeah, I can see how being white probably helped me in that environment. But at the same time, I think he'd say, but I don't know, like most of the people that love me the most are black. Like, so it's kind of like a, a weird, complicated, very layered story. That's not the only question in which we get to see this kind of guileless processing of information. What was your strategy to talk to Kenny G? He was just so open. Like, again, I'm not saying that he's not performing. He's very aware the camera's on. Okay. Like, yeah, he's know, trying he, to sort of direct the film from his perspective. Yeah, and you left that absolutely. in a lot, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. which is obviously a very conscious choice of of how much he wanted to please you, how many ideas yeah. he had for, like, how Sweaters, he should be walking, shots. what <laughs> yeah. he should be carrying, where should the camera be? Like, he's very, very much trying to make this the best thing it can be in his opinion. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And that's a huge part of his personality. I mean, so to answer your question, like I just talked to him like I would talk to anyone else. He was very easy to talk to. Like you didn't, there wasn't this kind of like layer of celebrity things between huh. me and him. Like where, where, you know, he's sort of saying one thing, but then whispering to his handlers, you know, a different uh-huh. thing. Like none of that, there was no people between us. Like Kenny and I just like texted each other and huh. he's very easy. He was the, he was a dream. To, to deal with. Like there was never any, any day that we filmed with him where he was cranky or like off. Like he was always like ready to go and like on. And in fact, he would exhaust me. Uh. Like the, the shooting days would end because I couldn't do anymore. <laughs> never because Kenny couldn't do anymore. By the way, we're talking to Penny Lane about her new documentary, listening to Kenny G out on HBO. Um, what do you think the emotional toll has been on uh, you know, Ken Gorelick to be this person who very much wants to be liked and has had all this success, but it's also just been absolutely run through the ringer by people. And it's just been the butt of so many jokes. Like, what do you think that's done to him as a human? I think, again, you know, you got a sense of how kind of logical he is. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, he would say if he were here, like, well, sold out stadiums all around the world. Like one of the top selling artists of all time, like hit after hit after hit after hit. Like my catalog is used in weddings all around the world to this day. Why would I focus on these like five people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's basically what it is. It's like, it just it's just the people that most artists are most worried about. Like we all, you know, we're like, oh, will critics like us? Mm. You know, and it's really just this very small segment of the population that you like don't necessarily need to win over in mm-hmm. order to have like huge success. And so I think that for him, like on whatever level it hurts his feelings, it's quite sublimated because he has done this kind of cognitive behavioral therapy approach of just kind <laughs> yeah. of like dealing with the evidence before you. Right. right, right like he'd be right. like, here's all the evidence. I mean, there are so many amazing details in this film, like he was one of the first investors in Starbucks. He wrote a song that is basically the national song in China for when it's time to leave the mall like the or the PM. business. It's the, it's called Going Home, and it's it's the song that is just pretty much played everywhere in a retail sense when it's time to go home. Can you explain what's going on with that? 
Well, no, no one understands what's going on with that. It's a weird mystery. Like no one knows how it happened. We we didn't get to the bottom of it, despite our really our best efforts. Um, but yeah, since you know Kenny's music was very present in China, like you know pretty much starting from when he became successful, because there was a huge bootlegging industry in China, as there is still is now. Um, but you know these copies of his music CDs would have been circulated all over the country. At some point, some enterprising person decided to use the song Going Home as like a sign that it's time to go home in like Clearly a Clearly they hadn't heard of uh, Closing Time by, by Semisonic. Semisonic. Yeah. That had not made its <laughs> way to China. <laughs> it hadn't made its way Every yet. bar but, in my in my or, youth was playing Closing exactly. Time and they were kicking us out. Or maybe, or maybe it was a government official. Oh, no, no one knows. Like, so anyway, it began as a tradition a long time ago. And it's still the case that if you have friends from China, you can play that song for them and they will know it. <laughs> we started this conversation, Penny, with me asking you kind of what your awareness of, of, of Kenny G was like before you made this film. And now you've spent so much time with his music and with him and with his fans and critics. Where did you land after all of that? Where are you at with his music now? Well, I would be very surprised if somehow someone watched this film and their taste changed. Like that would be weird, right? Like I don't, I don't think that happens. I don't think anyone's ever been like, argued in or out of actually liking something. Mm-hmm. Um, so Taste, that's just maybe not, but opinion, I think. Opinion's I think, different. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So so it's still not like my music. I'm, I'm not like a fan. Um, but I would say like, you know, when I hear, for example, the song Forever in Love, you know, so there's a part in the film where there's like a montage of people getting married to Kenny G's music. And the song in that scene is called Forever in Love. That's the most common song used in weddings. And, um, you know, one of my experts, John Halley, is saying, you know, like, the thing that matters about music is what associations do you have with it? Like, what does it remind you of? And now when I hear that song, I get really emotional because what it reminds me of is, like, these people whose faces I've learned, you know, walking down the aisle and, like, kissing their bride and, like, you know, all this stuff. And it's it's actually really beautiful. So my associations with this music have changed. Mm -hmm. The going home, I now think of China. (laughs) You know, so all the associations have changed completely. Songbird has now become, like, an anthem of rebellion. Yes! (laughs) Right? (laughs) Take that, Carson Bookers, and your your pre-existing ideas about what I should be playing. Uh, Well, uh, Penny, I have to say, this film is just an, an absolute delight. And a really, a beyond just being fun, it, it's a, a really great kind of meditation on, on, like you were saying, music and how it helps us define ourselves and who gets to say what is and isn't good. So I uh, definitely recommend everyone check it out. It's Listening to Kenny G. It's on HBO. Penny Lane, thanks for coming on Livewire. Thanks. It was fun. Hey, special thanks this episode to David Millman of Portland, Oregon. David is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports our show with a donation each month, which we're very thankful for because it's how we're able to keep doing this. So, David, thank you for keeping Livewire going. You're listening to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, We asked the listeners a question for this week's show. The question was, what's something you love that few other people seem to appreciate? 
And Elena, you have been collecting up those responses. What are people saying that they uniquely appreciate? These were so great, Luke. I feel like if you ever want to learn something about a person, this is a great question to ask because they all are these little windows into everybody's personalities. This one is from Becca. And the something that Becca loves that few other people seem to appreciate is wet dog smell. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Becca says, call me gross, but it just makes me happy. And lucky for me, I have two dogs and I live in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like that smell? I know you have a beloved dog. Yeah, I think I do because of actually something that comes up in that Kenny G documentary that we were talking about earlier in the show, which is when you have a positive experience around something, whether it's a piece of music or a smell, Mm -hmm. you then start to have a positive association with it. So yeah, me being out hiking with my dog Rudy and then Rudy's all wet and then jumps in the truck and then kind of maybe smells a little not great. It reminds me of fun things happening. So I can definitely see that. What's another thing that our listeners like that nobody else seems to like? Oh, I love this one from Julie. Julie says, not finishing a book. I'm an adult now, Julie says, and I get to read what I want. It's so satisfying to be able not to waste time on something that's not for you and move on to the good stuff. And uh, Lisa Lucas, who was like running the National Book Foundation for a while, Mm -hmm. said the same thing. Now, as a writer of books yourself, Elena, how do you feel about that, though? If you worked so hard on something (laughs) and then someone just kind of says, yeah, I'm going to bail 20 pages before the end. I don't know. I mean, I I, no comment, I guess. I I feel like um, (laughs) I have a a very divided relationship between writing the book and imagining people reading the book that I don't. I don't put the two together very frequently uh, in my brain. I think probably is a preservation tactic. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that everyone listens to every minute of this radio show. Oh, yeah, me too. You have to be a completist with live wires. That's right. I'm trying to tell the listeners. Clean plate club of listening. Please. Uh, What's something else that our listeners like that other people don't seem to be that into? (laughs) I love this one from Jesse. Jesse loves filling in forms. It's like taking a quiz where I know all the answers. Oh my gosh. I feel like that's actually instructive on kind of a larger way about life, which is there. I I dread forms. I find it very tedious. I I do everything I can to avoid filling them out, which means I go through long periods of time being uninsured or (laughs) not having, you know, (laughs) various things that are supposed to be done because I didn't want the forms. But if you look at it like Jesse is, hey, this is something where I actually know the, I know my address. I know what things I'm allergic to. Yeah, like that's the thing where it's like, what does that mean, allergic? Do you mean spiritually allergic? I overthink (laughs) the forms and then I just put them away and then that's when I end up not being insured. (laughs) If you look at it though as just like a a fun kind of process where you get to write in all the right answers, then yeah, I could kind of get into filling out some forms. Yeah. All right, let's uh, bring our next guest onto the show. He's a journalist and novelist who's reported from all over the world, including Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, lots of other places. His debut novel, American War, was an international bestseller. Meanwhile, the New York Times says that his new book, What Strange Paradise, deserves to be an instant classic. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation we recorded recently with Omar El Akkad as part of the Portland Book Festival. Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
this book is, is uh, really beautifully written, um, and it's, it's sort of a fairy tale of sorts. Yes, it's, uh, it's the story of Peter Pan, uh, reinterpreted as the, the story of a contemporary child refugee. It is, like almost everything I write, a stone-cold bummer. Uh, it's, it's a very depressing book. Um, but see, I don't think, I don't think so, because it obviously it, it depicts a, really, a very real problem, which is xenophobia and uh, nations not being opened to people who need to come to those uh, places. But there's a lot of hope in the book, too. You have this, this little boy is the only survivor of this, of this boat disaster, but then he's taken in by this uh, teenage girl that lives on this island, and she looks out for him, and I found her character be, to be so hopeful. I don't think it's a total bummer. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing because I... Um, so a, a few years ago, I was, I was down in southernmost Louisiana. I was doing a story about climate change, and after I was interviewing this gentleman who lives down there, and, and afterwards we were just sort of chatting, and he asked me this question that immigrants get all the time, where are you from? And my answer was not sufficiently satisfactory because he said, no, no, where are you really from? And then we did that little song and dance where you move backwards in time, and finally we got to Egypt, where, where I was born. And when I said, you know, well, I was born in Egypt, and he, he sort of nodded, and he said, uh, yeah, I could hear the Egyptian in your accent. <laughs> oh, my God. And I thought, no, you can't, man. I've, I've been working on this for a while. Um, yeah. And it's, but it's one of those reminders that, like, I don't have a good answer to that question. Mm. You know, I was born in one place. I grew up in another. I'm a citizen of Canada and the U.S. now. I had this bizarre experience a few weeks ago. I finally got my U.S. citizenship, and, and the way that you... Um, the last thing you do is you go into this interview, um, and of course, like, you know, I'm a brown guy named Omar, any interaction with the government is, is terrifying, but, but this one especially because it's they fail you and you're done, right? And so this big Austrian dude shows up. He, he immigrated from Austria 30 years ago, uh, I later learned, and he says, you, let's go. And he brings me in, and, and it's a bunch of questions, you know, have you ever done any human trafficking, that sort of thing. You just sit there and go, no, no, no. Um, but he starts off by saying, straight off the bat, he's like, what do you do? He's like, I'm a writer. It's like, what do you write? I was like, I write novels. And he just looks at me and he says, you know, I wrote a novel about the Yakuza. I went to Japan once, I met this guy, and, he, and the next 20 minutes of my citizenship interview <laughs> are this guy explaining his Yakuza novel to me. Um, and that happens a lot. That happens uh, quite a bit. Um, but it's, it's again, you, you feel unanchored all of the time. And so almost everything I write, the, the two published novels, the three thoroughly unpublishable novels that came before, the short stories, they're all, they all have that element of not being able to point to a place and say, you know, mm. this is home. We're talking to Omar Al-Akkad. His new book is What Strange Paradise. At what point in the process did the idea to kind of frame this around the Peter Pan narrative occur to you? Were you midway through writing and you thought this would work, or did you go in with that plan? Yeah, so, so the, the Peter Pan thing is like, when we talk about Peter Pan now, we, we usually talk about, you know, Peter Pan syndrome or something, right? A man who refuses to stop acting like a child. The origins of Peter Pan are the exact opposite. So J.M. Barry, the guy who wrote the thing, when he was young, uh, his older brother died in a skating accident. when He was, I think, 13 years old. And it crushed the family. His mom never recovered. And one of the things she would tell herself to sort of comfort herself was, at least he'll never grow old. And mm -hmm. so that is the origin of, of Peter Pan, is the exact opposite. It's not the man who refuses to stop acting like a child. It's a child who never gets a chance to become a man. And so I wanted to take this comforting fairy tale that Westerners have been telling their kids for 100 years, and I wanted to invert it and use it to tell a different kind of story. Um, that said, unless you're sort of intimately familiar with Peter Pan and the life of Jan Barry, it doesn't sort of come screaming off the, off right. the page. Nobody flies in a window, you know, no, like no. sprinkling 
fairy dust anywhere. Earlier drafts were much mm-hmm. more explicit, but yeah, but yeah we <laughs> sure. sort of toned those down later on. But sometimes that works in the middle of writing, or it serves more of a purpose in the middle of writing than when you're done writing, to have a device like that or a... Yeah, I mean, with, with both books, there, there were these moments where structurally I was hitting a brick wall, and then you, immediately, you have this moment, this eureka moment, where you're like, oh my God, I figured it out. Right. And I had that with, with American War and What Strange Paradise, and in both cases, I was completely wrong. I had this moment where I thought, oh, this is what I need to do. And in the case of What Strange Paradise, it was, I need to have monologues from each of the central characters who are on this migrant ship. Hmm. And, and it's going to explain everything, and it's going to lend this depth. Three months later, and 30,000 words later, I'm like, oh, this doesn't work at all. <laughs> this was a bad idea. And so you just delete all of that. Uh, and the same thing happened with American War. It was about 30,000 words worth of what I thought was a brilliant construction. Uh, that immediately went into the recycling bin. And I know for a fact that we have, uh, because this is a Portland Book Festival show, we have a lot of writers in the audience and maybe some MFA student writers in the audience. Yeah. That's a bigger response than I was expecting. (laughs) Although this is public radio, so most of the audience has an MFA. That's true. (laughs) You get it in a tote bag. Yes, that's exactly But maybe you could give us a little, this is good for me too, but like when you've written 30,000 words into something and you know you're going to have to just turn around and, and find a new way to make it through, how do you keep yourself from just getting under the covers and crying and quitting? <laughs> and I'm not telling the competition a damn thing. Please, Are you kidding me? <laughs> the only reason I'm still in this racket is because other people drop out. It's not because I'm any good. It's because other people give up. Uh, Stay in school, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Learn a trade, for the love of God. Um, uh, there was one point when I was writing American War where the, the, the insecurity and the sort of anxiety got so much that I deleted the whole thing. And I went to the recycle bin and I made sure to delete it because I was so... I, I, had, I just hit this wall, and I was like, what are you doing? At the time, I had a real job that paid me money, and I had health insurance, and I was writing between sort of midnight and 4 a.m., and it was this horrible lifestyle. I don't, I don't recommend it. Um, and then I took a long walk down to the river, and I was like, okay, yeah, you're not good at this, but you're so much worse at everything else. Like, you, this is where you need to be, you know? Um, which is the way I, I feel now that that's a very bad piece of advice to be giving future students. <laughs> Um, you, this may be hard, but everything in life is harder. Um, so, so stick with this, I guess, is the closest thing. Because you're like, yeah, how do you keep from climbing under the covers and crying? I do that all of the time. You don't keep from it. You do that, and then you go back and write some more. I'm wondering how you knew, uh, uh, maybe it sounds like um, you had your doubts that you were going to be able to be a novelist because you were a journalist, and that's, you know, one kind of writing. And then I think a lot of journalists probably think, well, I have a novel in me. But most of them don't actually go through with it. And most of them don't have their debut novel be this the absolute smash that yours was. I guess, what's the difference in the style of writing for you? So, uh, I mean, journalism paid the bills for, for 10 years. And, and it gave me something adjacent to what I wanted to do with my life. You know, it was pretty close. I got paid to write for a living. It wasn't exactly the kind of writing I wanted to do. Um, I remember I walked into the Globe and Mail, I worked up at the national paper in Canada, the Globe and Mail, and and on my first day there as an intern, this guy, Greg O'Neill, who was this legend, back. he'd been working there for 40 years by the time I showed up. Greg O'Neill sits every intern down, he sits me down, he says, listen, I'm going to tell you what I tell all the other kids. Uh, This paper, the reporters are all gods. 
and the editors are all atheists. <laughs> and it was his way of explaining to me what was about to happen to my copy. You know, you put in one extra adjective or something, they were going to slash that thing. So 10 years of that, and then you pick up American War, and the first half of American War is incredibly purple. It's the description, it's overdone. And that's after 10 years of these people trying to beat it into me to stop doing this. So you can imagine what the writing was like on the other side of that. It was, um, it was an education, and um, journalism doesn't do well with unanswerable questions, and I have a lot of those, so I end up going to fiction just to sort of sit with questions and, and let it marinate. Um, I still go back to journalism all the time. Uh, I do it quite badly now because my tendency to just make stuff up when I'm stuck <laughs> <laughs> kicks in, and, and they, they look down on that. Yeah, now. probably not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're not fans. Omar, um, what, are you, what are you hoping the takeaway from this book will be for people? What's the experience you're hoping people will have when they read it? Because it is about a very serious topic, but again, it's written in a really artful way. It doesn't feel you're just being hit over the head with the unfortunate and depressing reality of the world, basically. Um, thank you for that endorsement. That's, 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 really, that's really kind and mostly untrue. I, I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, I used to have a much more certain answer to that question, mm. you know, what I want readers to take away. I thought with American War, I thought, oh, they'll read this as an anti-war book, and, and it'll, you know, uh, the U.S. is going to stop bombing brown people now. They're going to shut down the drone program once they read this. No, None of that happened. In fact, at one point, my, my publisher collected a series of reaction sort of blurbs from indie booksellers about the book, and for some reason they sent this to me, even though they weren't all good. In fact, most of them were not. For some reason, they are like, Omar, have this. And I was looking through them, and there was an indie bookseller in Texas who said, um, American War shows why a second civil war would be brutal and bloody and why it is necessary. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought, really? That's what, you, that's what you took away from this book. That's, um, so I've learned to sort of really sort of tame my expectations for what people get. Because I'm a deeply insecure person, I Google the names of my books a lot. And um, I was Googling What's Strange Paradise, and you know how Google sort of suggests things real uh -huh. quick oh, no. on it? Um, the first, one of the first suggestions is what strange paradise ending explained. <laughs> People are having trouble with the book. They're having a real hard time, and they're going to the internet to find out what the hell is going on. <laughs> well, that's uh, good. You've got them thinking. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> I'm tempted to make a specific reference to the end, but I don't want to give anything away. Um, yeah, so what strange paradise is the name of his sled. <laughs> that's, that's what it turns out. I don't... I mean, you're I allowed feel, to spoil your own book yeah, if you exactly. care to. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that. Yeah. Um, it's inside a I'm snow globe. I don't know how many books I failed to sell tonight. No. Um, thank you for having even if me. You're, even if you're going to take the road of self-deprecation, Omar, I am going to take the road of saying this book, What Strange Paradise, is really uh, marvelous, and everyone should check it out. Omar Al-Akkad, author of What Strange Paradise. Thanks for coming on Livewire. That was Omar El Akkad, right here on Livewire, recorded as part of the Portland Book Festival at the Alberta Rose Theater. Uh, his new book, What Strange Paradise, is available now. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we will have some music involving a horn section called the Honey Nut Horns. Mm. So we know you do not want to miss that. Back with more Livewire in just a moment. 
Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour is a seven-piece ensemble. They met as jazz students at the University of Washington, my alma mater. Hey, hey. (laughs) Uh, Their music melts rhythm, blues, and 60s-era soul. And if that is not enough to pique your interest, uh, their horn section is known as the Honey Nut Horns, which sounds delicious as well as, uh, you know, sonically pleasant. Uh, they joined us on Livewire back in 2018, and they had the Alberta Rose Theater really partying down. Mm-hmm. This is The Dip, performing live at the Alberta Rose Theater from back in 2018. Check it out. Uh, what song are we going to hear? Uh, this song is called Sure Don't Miss You. All right. This is The Dip on Livewire.
That was The Dip performing right here on Livewire from back in 2018. Their latest album, A Perfect Plan, is available now. Uh, they're also heading out on tour this spring, so you can find them at thedipmusic.com. All right, before we get out of here this week, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, as you uh, may or may not have noticed by looking at a calendar, we are getting towards the end of the year, about the time of year that all these best of things come out. All this, like, what were you listening to on Spotify and the like? Mm-hmm. I looked at my Spotify rap and there wasn't anything cool enough <laughs> to, <laughs> to put it out on social media. Do you know what my most listened to podcast of 2021 was? Better be Livewire. Nope. <laughs> it was Soothing Ocean Sounds, that riveting <laughs> podcast. I listened to it for like 18 straight hours. <laughs> I know that feeling. I have an, an app that plays the sound of a fan, mm-hmm. and I will listen to that sometimes for most of a day. Oh, yeah. Everything's a- going great emotionally for me, I just like <laughs> to mention to the audience. <laughs> so these best of lists are coming out, and uh, we decided that we're going to pick a couple of our favorite interviews from this last uh, year. First up, we're going to listen back to a conversation we had with the writer Ashley C. Ford. Uh, She wrote this memoir, Somebody's Daughter, uh, which has just been an absolute huge hit. New York Times uh, said it was one of the 100 notable books of the year. You were on that list, weren't you, with one of your books, Elena? I was, and so is our other guest this week, Omar Alakad. Congratulations. Yay. Wow. See, and uh, it led to you being the co-host of Livewire. That's right. (laughs) We can only imagine what amazing things will happen for Ashley and also Omar. Yeah. Speaking of uh, good reviews, or certainly fascinating reviews, we're also going to talk to the writer and vlogger John Green about his new collection of essays, The Anthropocene Reviewed. He's the guy that wrote uh, The Fault in Our Stars, that very, very popular YA novel, and also Turtles All the Way Down. Mm -hmm. The Anthropocene Reviewed is where he just takes different aspects of kind of human life, like Diet Dr. Pepper... Uh, or sunsets, or Canada geese, and then he ranks them on a one to five star rating, and it's a super great show. We're very excited to uh, talk about the book as well that goes along with the podcast. Uh, so do tune in for that. Two of our very favorite conversations from 2021 coming up next week on the show. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Live Wire. A huge thanks to our guests, Penny Lane, Omar Al Akkad, and The Dip. Special thanks this week also to Amanda Bullock at the Portland Book Festival. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our house band this week was Ethan Fox Tucker, Ayal Alves, Eric Clampett, and Alex Radakovich. A Walker Spring composes our music, Molly Pett is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member David Millman of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.